we are where we are. We are still in uh, Sutra number 232. The Niyamas, observances, consist of purity, contentment, austerity, which means accepting but not causing pain, self-study, introspection, and openness to higher truths. We are up to openness to higher truths. Do we have any questions or comments from anything that's been said before? This is a hot night, isn't it? Muggy. I was, uh, we complain terribly when the weather is even slightly uncomfortable here. Okay. <laughs> we are so spoiled. Yes. Saranya, now the deal is the microphone is always on, but it's controlled from the back. It should be on. Make it green. Okay, unmute it, and then just leave it unmuted for the rest of the night, and Vinny's going to control it from the back, because otherwise it becomes crazy. And hold it close enough so that you can hear it. I'm going to rely upon your awareness to do this. Okay, very good. Good girl. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but okay. I want to ask. Okay, but you're going to beat a dead horse. I am horse. going to beat it. What, what is the dead horse? The willingness of God. But I, what my question is... Uh-huh. God's will. I'm sorry, not the willingness. God's will. Okay. So my question is, ordinarily when I use the word will, uh-huh. you know, your mother wills that you should do such and such, I would translate that word to mean want. I could use want instead of will. But when I say God's will, I feel like I need some other understanding for the word will because it, it doesn't sit well to me that God wants all the things that are our karma to happen. Oh, Okay. Um, does the mother want the child to have an operation that's going to save the child's life? No, no, pause. Okay, so the child is going to suffer. It's going to be extremely unpleasant. The mother prefers that it not have to happen, but if the alternative is worse than the suffering, then the mother would want the child to go through the suffering because the, the pain is worth it. It's going to take you somewhere. So all the unpleasant things that happen to us is predicated on the fact that they're purposeless suffering. They're nothing, nothing is purposeless. God wants it all to happen because it is the only way we're going to learn. And he wants us to come to final freedom. And he really wants us to come to final freedom if you're going to use it like that. So yes, he wants all these things to happen because they're all absolutely necessary stages. They may be self-induced by our own stupidity, but once they are self-induced by our own stupidity, they are still necessary steps, and he wants them to happen. See, it's the karmic law that you have to straighten out here, and it's that always that everybody does. This is good, and that's bad, and this is bad because it's unpleasant. But it's only unpleasant because, I was think, was it here? Maybe it was a different book I'm studying. I'm a little confused because I'm doing the Gita and then this one, and they, they're crossing in a lot of places. But uh, it's that, the, oh, no, it's, it's a book on self-realization. It's Master talking about the divine law. The divine law is planted there, and the divine law simply defines what will produce fulfillment and happiness. And when we violate that law, we do not have either fulfillment or happiness. And God wants us to have fulfillment and happiness, and so he wants us to learn where that will be found. 
And whatever it takes to learn where it, where it will be found, he definitely wants that to happen. Does he want us to suffer? No. He would prefer that we understand and accept. But if it's necessary for us to suffer, there's no hesitation. You know, the divine no more flinches than a surgeon flinches when he cuts in with a knife. Because if he doesn't pull the cancer out, worse things will happen. So this is a means to an end. Yeah, so God wants it. But see, the problem is, is what do we want? We want, we want that which can never fulfill us to fulfill us. We want something that is contrary to divine law. And no matter how much God loves us, he just can't make it work. Just like a little child demands certain things, and there's just no way. No matter how intensely the child demands, it just can't be done. And we're just exactly the same. And yeah. I think I actually had an aha moment there, because I think that our vision, my vision, certainly is smaller. And so when I see something that you know, can't possibly be God's will because it's so horrible, but I think God's vision is, of course, infinite, and so can see the path a little better than I can. Yes, he can see the path a little better. He can see past karma and future karma. Master tells that story of the baby being placed in his hands. You know, you can imagine, Oh, Master, bless my baby. Oh, here's a goochie goochie goo baby. And Master holds this baby and he realizes this, this baby's a murderer. He's too little now, but when he was bigger in his past life, he murdered. And he saw, as Master put it, the carried over consciousness of a murderer, and he, quote, almost dropped the baby. You know, no parent is going to think. I mean, and imagine, the baby had the karma to be in Master's hands, and, and some adults must have put him there. So there was certainly a mixed bag of karma here, but Master saw what he was holding. And so if that baby struggles in his life, is Master going to think that's a bad thing? No. He knows that this... this particular soul has a lot to expiate. So if he sees it expiating, he's not going to be sorry about that. Good. It's getting balanced. Karmic law is everything. I mean, I've repeatedly say that, but if you can get, 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 way, get, karma, reincarnation, divine law, you will save yourself so much anguish because then all you have to do is suffer. <laughs> You don't have to rebel and argue and struggle. All you have to do is just, you're just, it's very simple. You're just in pain because you deserve it. You know, of course I'm in pain because I, I, you know, I did something bad and now I'm suffering. And that's real simple and extraordinarily powerful. Releases you from so much. I mean, we talked about, last time when I talked about contentment, what contentment really is, that we're not in any way rebelling. I mean, just think how much of your suffering is freaking out because it's happening at all. And then you just half, three quarters of your suffering is just the revolt and the, with the, just the annoyance and the blah, blah, blah. If you just got rid of all of that, said, wow, look what's coming. Which brings us to openness, to higher truths, which is exactly where we are which is why the yamas and the niyamas carry everything. Once you get these few points, um, what our friend Vimala, who raised uh, seven children, I think she had seven. I can't remember if she had seven or nine, but I think it was seven. And she told me she 
had the yamas and the niyamas on the refrigerator. And the refrigerator was kind of the arbiter of family behavior. She didn't have to be the, the, the arbiter. Whenever anything went wrong between the kids or with the kids, they'd all go to the refrigerator <laughs> and they'd look. And whatever was off, they could always find it in the yamas and the niyamas. Somebody was transgressing one of those fundamental principles. And the way to put the situation back in order was to get back in harmony with those principles. That's why we could just study these again and again and again and just get them really, or work on them sequentially, or however they seem to be needed. Because whenever we're out of sorts, it means because we're out, out of alignment. And God wants us back in alignment. Okay? See, want, um, in human ter- terms, tends to mean egoically based. Um, uh, egoically based selfish pre- preference. And so God doesn't want in that sense. But God has a single desire, which is our eternal freedom. And whatever it takes is his, is his will, is his want. I mean, see, want is even more active. I mean, there's a very positive connotation when I think about it, about want. Because God is not passive. He's just not sitting there saying, well, I hope the poor saps get it right. You know, there's a, an active um, calling of the divine toward us. So God really wants us to learn and really wants us to succeed. There's a very active um, love relationship here. It isn't an impersonal God's will. I mean, that's not how the devotee experiences it. And God wants what's best for us. Not all mothers, not, not all that mothers want is what's really best for their child. It may be what the mother thinks is best for the child, but it isn't necessarily what's best for the child because not all mothers have the wisdom, the detachment uh, from themselves and from their children to really want only what's the best. Because, the, you know, we freak out. We see the people we love suffering and we freak out. We can't hold it. We're not steady. All right. Anything else? Just like Swami, remember Swami talks about how when he was in Romania as a child and it was so backward they didn't have any uh, painkiller when they had to drill his teeth. So the dentist, because uh, it was so painful for Swamiji having his teeth drilled, the dentist would only drill halfway through the decayed part and then he'd put the filling on. And that was, like, that was not love because of course later in his life everything had to be redone and redone. It was just a mess. But the, the dentist didn't have the strength to go through what had to be done for the true welfare of the child. He panicked at the pain. Then that's what we do. We panic at our own pain or we panic at someone else's pain. And our only thought is to cover over the decay with the filling rather than really think we, we just got to drill this down right to the bottom. And of course, I mean, it's very hard. But this is what you have to just say to yourself over and over again. Every soul has its own destiny. And, and I don't want to take away from anyone the opportunity to learn what they have to learn. Why would you want to do that? What good reason would you have for wanting to do that? Okay. The compassion part is tricky. Um, why? Well, if, if you just look at somebody and, you, and they're suffering, I'm thinking of psychic suffering, and um, and so, you know, do you listen to them? 
the third or fourth, fifth time they've you've heard this, or you know, I don't know. I, I, can you just comment on that? Um, it takes a great deal of centeredness to be genuinely helpful to people. You have to have a lot of courage, and you have to have a lot of detachment, and you have to have an enormous faith in God, and you have to have a much longer rhythm. And then, after all of that, once you're centered, it's much easier to intuitively know what will be helpful in this situation. And sometimes you listen to the same story dozens of times because it's simply the most helpful thing that you can do. And if you're not frantic to get them to change, desperate to have it stop, and sometimes what you say is, I think we've heard that story enough. I think it's time to go on. But you have to know that from a divine center, and you're much more likely to know that if you have the courage. Well, faith is the word that really comes down to. If you have the faith to know that karma is always fair, and God is always with us, and that pain is often the shortest route to freedom. And so the mere fact that someone is suffering does not put you into a panic state. It's just, mm-hmm, this is what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, and you can be very sympathetic, extremely sympathetic. Yeah, this is horrible. You can, you can sympathize with someone's suffering and without encouraging their self-pity, their weakness, or their rebellion. You can be very, very sympathetic and, and be sympathetic in such a way that it's strengthening to the person rather than weakening but all of that is attunement to, to a higher flow of energy in the moment. And the only way that's possible is if you yourself are calm and detached and, and believe in this person's victory. Faith in God is faith in everybody. You have, you have, if you have faith in God, you see, everybody can make it. Everybody will make it. God is taking care of everybody. So no matter what kind of a, a pathetic mess might be sitting in front of you, it'll succeed sooner or later. It'll straighten itself out. And if it chooses to be miserable for longer than you might think is necessary, your opinion is rather useless because if that's what that person thinks they need and they're going to go through it, then you can just be very, from your heart, extremely sympathetic. You sympathize with many things. You sympathize with whatever's causing the misery, you sympathize with the fact that the person is not ready to give up their misery. That's it, man. That causes great compassion in the heart. You know, oh, and then you go to where Swami would go. Ah, how much more glorious will be their bliss and freedom because of all the misery they're going through. And you, you imagine even in the moment their freedom. And of course, all of this help, that's what really helps a person through. When... When I've been called into situations where people are dying because, for the most part, and I haven't had so much experience that I can say this, you know, with unequivocal conviction, but for the most part, death does not frighten me. Certainly the idea of death does not frighten me. So just to be in a situation where someone is dying and not to be frightened by that is just such an enormous benefit to everyone involved because somebody's not afraid. And if somebody's really upset about something, and you know they're suffering, but you're not afraid of their suffering, because, well, this is what happens. 
You may be weeping with them. But compassion, you, you can be very compassionate and, and very empathic without being afraid. And you're not afraid because pain is the shortest route to freedom. So it's just great to see somebody just on the shortest route to freedom, isn't it? If they were, you know, in some incredible sports competition and were absolutely at the end of their strength but holding on and getting through, you'd be cheering them. It's, that's where we are. Everything is survival. <laughs> what's, that, what's that with the program? Survivors? What's that? Yeah, the program where everything is done really horrible so to see if you can live through it. Well, I mean, that's life. Okay? All right. That was a good question. That wasn't a bad question. Um, so we are now at openness to higher truths. And Swamiji says that this one is usually written as worship, but Swamiji feels worship implies a much greater formality than Patanjali intended. Because Patanjali is not talking about any kind of specified and limited in time or limited in technique or place kind of exercise of devotion. He's talking about um, the very fact that it, at all times we should be thinking that we are, we are always acting in relationship to the divine. And it shouldn't be something that's just saved for when we put on special clothes and come to special places and do special things. That's nice because it often uh, gives us an experience, especially collectively when we're worshiping together. Um, it, it raises the energy and gives us an experience. But once we have that vibration, the point of that is to remember what it feels like to be very conscious of the fact that I am in relation to a higher reality. And that higher reality is loving me and guiding me and teaching me at all times. In other words, the Swami, the way to think about it is because we're openness. I mean, the openness that we're trying to be most attuned to is God's guidance for us. This is what, what I was talking about here. It's, it's all about knowing in the moment what we're supposed to do. And... That was the question that I asked Swamiji about being in the concentration camp, which most of you have heard me talk about, my imaginary question. Being in the concentration camp, person next to me is attacked by the guards. This, is my, this was my theoretical question. Do I interfere knowing that it's going to be the end of my life to do so? Do I just stand there and let that person be beaten? You know, what, do, what am I supposed to do in such a moment? If I had the courage to throw away my own life, should I? And Swami's answer to me was classic and eternal. He said, what you're asking is, in the moment of intense crisis, how do you know what God wants you to do? Because that's really what I'm asking, which is the higher duty to preserve my life. Because in that specific circumstance, from what we know of history, Perhaps my intervention would cause more havoc to come down on everybody in my little unit. And so not only would that one person not be spared, but maybe all of us would be more, more egregiously abused rather than to allow that one person's life to be interrupted or taken away. So you need to, but how do you know that? You can't calculate that. And certainly in such a circumstance, you can't ask. You know, excuse me, sir, if I intervene, are you going to beat just me? Or are you going to beat all of us? I mean, it's out of the question. So Swami's answer was, that's when he said to me, the only way you can know in such a moment of intensity 
What God wants you to do is that you have practiced when it was easier. It has to be an habitual turning inward and upward when, whenever, you're, whenever, all the time in your life. Now, this is a balance point, and this is where, to my way of understanding, I like the eight manifestations of God because it's like, God, do you want me to have some tea? Should I drink tea right now? Do, do you really want me to have tea? Let me think for just a moment. Do you want me to have tea? Mm, maybe yes, maybe no. A little tea, one, two sips. You know, it's just, you become paralyzed. And people actually are like that. Their idea of what it means to feel, you know, to be an instrument of God and to feel God's will becomes so trivialized, there's, there's no super consciousness in it. It's just the ego kind of trying to reassemble its own preferences. So the way I try to feel this openness is you think of the eight manifestations of God, joy, peace, calmness, wisdom, light, sound, energy. Did I hit them all? Love. Okay. So we can depend on the fact that God always wants us to be a manifestation of a high vibration. And we can also depend on the fact that it's just not always easy to be an instrument of God. You know, there just may not be a clear-cut answer. And it can, as I said, it can just slow normal conversation down <laughs> to the point where you become unbalanced. So what we really want to be doing is we always want to be open to a high vibration. And we always want to be responding appropriately and just moving with an awareness of how can I, in this situation, bring upward-moving energy. And also by those manifestations are generally more accessible. To really, really feel God actually guiding every step is a very, very, very refined level of consciousness. And as Swami said once, he said it in a slightly different context, but it was the, the context was a woman who was uh, involved in a really unproductive, terrible relationship, romantic relationship with this man. It was just a disaster. And all common sense said that she just really needed to leave that behind and go on. It was going nowhere, and it was going nowhere really, really fast. And, but she was nervous about using her common sense because of this superstitious idea in her mind that he might be the one. And if he was the one, then she didn't want to turn away from him. She just had herself in a complete knot. And Swami was very sympathetic. He, I was sitting there listening to the conversation. He, he, during those years, he often had me be a fly on the wall because he was trying to get me to understand a lot of things, so I got to listen. So he comforted her, but used common sense, you know, do you get along? Do you like each other? Is it, you know, and just common sense questions. After she left, he said to me, the truth is, that woman has so much to learn, she could learn it with any number of people. She is simply not at the point of development where her karma has become so simplified that there is only one for her. Now, I mean, that's, a, that's a very interesting answer, and it's not a very romantic or very pleasant answer, really. It's just that it's not the, the circumstances of your life, it's what you make of them. Now, that is not a recipe well, Swamiji said for a period of time, he said that he believed that any two devotees ought to be able to be happily married to each other. And there was a man in our community 
who made a, a, a marriage choice that turned out to be unfortunate. And he was giving a class at Spiritual Renewal Week, and those of us who knew his personal history saw that he was working himself toward having to explain why his marriage broke up. How he got himself there, I don't know, but he got himself there. And I and others who knew where he was going to have to go became extremely interested to see how he was going to get out of it because he was not a self-revealing type. And he was masterful. He said, my ex-wife and I experimented with the theory that Swamiji had given us that any two devotees could be happily married to each other. And in our case, we found it wasn't true. (laughs) Afterwards, I... Pardon me? He experimented. Afterwards, I saw him. I gave him a standing ovation. I said, I was sweating a little bit just watching you work your way there. He said he was sweating too when he saw what he had done. But the fact is you have to also use your common sense. And sometimes this is just totally unsuitable. And it's just not possible and you need to just cut your losses and go on. Theory is one thing, reality is another. But the, the point of that is, oh yes, that it's really a little bit presumptuous of us to imagine that we are so clean in our uh, egoic preferences that we would be able to hear the divine quite that sensitively. This is a little bit of a tricky point. And I, I, will, I will freely say, this is a little bit of a pet issue of my own, which is that I sometimes see people get so determined to believe that God is guiding them in everything they do that I'm not sure that serves them because they, they, they become committed to believing that. And the, the difference between their own inclinations and God's will gets a little bit mixed up there. So I think we, we want to be open to God's guidance but we need to put ourselves on a higher vibration to, to merely say, what do you want me to do, God? Even to feel it sincerely is not the same as to really being so neutral, um, in other words, free of actual preferences, that we can really hear it properly. Graham, Tandava. So you mentioned obviously trying to get guidance about how many sips of tea to have is a little bit ridiculous. Um, On the other end of the scale, most of us, if we were about to consider moving to India, for instance, would probably pray a lot and try and get some guidance. Where's where's sort of the dividing line in the middle? I think at all times you should be trying to be a manifestation, what you should trying to be a channel for one of the eight manifestations of God. And if you're always trying to be a channel for one of the eight manifestations of spirit, you will be constantly bringing your energy back to center. And the more you constantly bring your energy back to center, the more you actually train yourself away from your likes and dislikes and train yourself into a higher vibration. And then automatically you'll be more in tune in a more cosmic sense with what's happening. In other words, I think... It's a more practical way to get to the same point instead of what do you want, what do you want, what do you want? Because what do you want is a little dangerous. But certainly, God always wants us to be joyful, loving, calm, peaceful, energetic, an instrument of light. I, I made the, the joking, comment, don't, joking comment just watching myself because this has been a long-standing practice of mine. When I was in the restaurant 
And the man wanted to take my plate, and there was one tiny bite on my plate left. And he said, can I take your plate? And with enormous exaggerated energy, I picked up the piece that was there, popped it in my mouth, and said, now you can take it. And I just realized that the habit, in my case, of both using energy and using joy all the time. It would have been so easy to say, not quite, I need a bite. And I mean, I, I have a personality, so it's also personality, but it was like everything we do, let's just do it with full commitment. And that habit makes it easier when you really need to get something that you're, you've been walking in the channel a lot more. Okay, very trivial example, I admit, but it was more just interesting to me just to watch the instinctive response to a situation. Instead of looking for the lowest, way, lowest energy way to do it, I always try to find the highest energy way to do it. Adam? Um, a, a thought came to me that I want you to clarify. So I was, when you were saying that, trying to feel one of the manifestations, I was thinking, so does that mean then if you're feeling one of the manifestations that you can trust more your reason, as in reason follows feeling, rather than if you're agitated and worried about something, maybe reason would follow the feeling of either your agitation or your likes and dislikes. So are you saying we could better trust our reason if we are feeling love or peace or calmness? Well, or? no. Yes, actually, that's, that's a very good way to put all the pieces together and to explain why it does work. That's ex exactly right. You're, in order to stay in those vibrations, you're constantly having to discipline your likes and dislikes because it's your likes and dislikes that pull you out of those vibrations. Calmness, as an example but I'm so worried. How, what, what's going to happen? I mean, I don't know what's going to happen here. And I, if that happens, then this will happen and it'll be so terrible. No. I mean, I'm just going to be in the vibration of calmness. I'm going to do Hong Sa. I'm going to do a mantra. And even though in the background, this unresolved situation is vibrating, I'm going to hold myself very calmly centered. And so naturally then, whatever occurs to you in that moment is going to be more impartial, at least. And you have, you have a, 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 more, a better chance of getting a superconscious intuition than when you're lost in the vrittis, so to speak. And, and, see, the thing about the eight manifestations is they're just, you can always be doing them. It's, it's a super practice when it's easier kind of concept because there's just always whatever's going on you can just get in there and do it. I mean, that was what Swami was like. I've, I've said it so many times. He, he was never low energy. You know, if it was... Davy wrote recently her The Touch of Light. She talked about Swami and coffee, making coffee for him. And she, she just... She passed over it. She, she explained it, but she didn't elaborate on every time you'd go over there, he'd have a new way of making coffee. But every time you'd go over there, he'd have a new way of making coffee. He was always just... Um, figuring out new ways to make coffee and then everyone would have to learn it and he would focus on getting you to learn it. It was really training a whole lot of things in us. Concentration, attention, um, just a whole lot of things. Creativity. And, but he really put a lot of energy and you had to, you had to make it the new way. You, was just, you couldn't just serve it to, how was this coffee made? No, no, no. This is not the way we're making it now. We're doing this. He was never... It was always extremely light but it was never low energy. And you were never allowed to just say something like, oh, it's just coffee for heaven's sake, Swamiji. Nope. Whatever we're doing, we're going to do it. And if we're just making coffee, we're going to just do it with full enthusiasm. And it, just, it became 
It became an instrument of joy. Everything became an instrument of joy because of that spirit. Now, I, I mentioned on Saturday night Swami making chapatis in the kitchen. You know, there was just, um, he was just, he was so present. That's the only thing I can think of. It's just like that, that he was absolutely in the eternal center of reality just making those chapatis. You know, I could make chapatis and be doing a hundred other things simultaneously. You know, but he, everything about him was right there. It was, it was marvelously instructive. So, okay. Was there another question there? Yes, on this side. I'm always saying to myself, okay, here's another test. Is that a self-centered thing to be thinking? Well, it'd be nice if... And, and, then, and then I start breathing, you know. I mean, it's nice to think of it as another test, but opportunity is a nicer word. You, you want to you put positive spins on things if you're always thinking of things as tests. Swami actually said those exact words to me now that I think about it. Asha, everything isn't a test. Because that, he saw me responding like that. Oh, here comes another test. Okay, I'll get ready. And so as a consequence, I was always in this state of, of near failure or anxiety or, you know, everything was difficult instead of just being what it was. I heard Swami on a little something I was watching this morning and he commented that his horoscope, uh, his, his, his horoscope was exceedingly difficult he had, I don't know anything about astrology, but it's what's called a grand cross in which everything in his horoscope opposed everything else. And there was some astrologer friend of his who just every time she'd meet anyone who knew Kriyananda, she would comment, I don't know how he lives with that horoscope like this. So Ami said, he's never thought of his horoscope as difficult. He's never thought of his life as difficult. It just, you know, things happen and he deals with them. And it just doesn't cross his mind to label it has astrologically afflicted or everything is so hard and I have so many problems and everything is a test, something happens and he deals with it. And the whole orientation, you see how much energy is lost and drained and pulled down. As he said to me, Asha, everything is not a test. It's just an event. We're just having events and every event should be met with one of the eight manifestations of God. And if we're falling away from it, then we try to do our best to get back to it. It's just, it's, it's not a, it also because the spiritual path is not a, it's not a constant pass-fail experience. Well, I didn't do that one very well. Okay, now I'll try to do this one well. I didn't do that one very well. Just this, it's not a constant evaluation. It's, there's the divine light and I'm going to get there. And if I'm walking there and I was at a, the, actually it was the luncheon after the memorial service for Swamiji at Ananda Village. And because I knew Swami's family over the years, I was part of the group that was sitting there with his relatives, and they served us lunch at Crystal Hermitage. So I mean, it was a pretty serious occasion. And there was a group of uh, Ananda folks who were serving the meal and taking care of everything. And I was sitting next to... Uh, I know exactly who she is. Oh, yes, the sister of, uh, of the man who spoke... Uh, Dick's two children, Leslie, that's her name, Leslie Walters, and Swami's niece. David Walters spoke, and this is his sister. And, just as, and so I'm sitting there right next to him. We're talking. We had a very nice time. The thing is beginning to end. So we were standing up and beginning to say, good, say goodbye. Is that how it happened? How did it happen? Well, I can't exactly remember the details, but we stood up, 
uh, we stood up, and the, the, the people helping were so attentive, they pulled my chair back. And then when she stood up, I noticed she had the, her dress had a beautiful border. She was wearing this really pretty dress. So I sat down again so that I could admire the border of her dress, except my chair was gone. Right. So right in the middle of this whole thing, this poor fellow who pulled the chair back, who shall remain nameless, you know, just in the middle of this whole thing, I go just flat right to the ground. What was my point in telling this? I don't even remember. But, you know, I just, there I am, just all the way to the ground. It's not not a convenient thing to have happen in the context. You know, but it's just like, okay, you're down, so just stand up. We just go on. And that that was probably what I was going to say. I mean, many things happen, but now I fall into the ground, so I just get up. Do Do we spend a long time in conversation about this? No, we just fell down, so now we stand up. I remember Swami, I wrote this in my book. He was sitting on a chair on the dais giving a lecture, and he was very, they put the chair up really close to the edge of the platform. And just in the vibrancy of what he was saying, his chair just went to the back, and he was talking. He fell backwards off the dais. The entire place goes, <gasps> like that. Swami didn't even stop talking. <laughs> He just continued his conversation, stood up and talked. They put the chair back and he sat down. I mean, just totally seamless. I was sitting, now I'm falling on the ground. Now I'm, you know, it's just like totally seamless. You don't stop and say, what a test, what a test. That's what I was wanting to say. And you see, it's no different. Everything's going fine and then you begin to, I mean, it's very dramatic to sit on a chair that's not there and go crashing to the ground, falling off the dais. But that's really all that's happening when all of a sudden somebody's being mean to you or suddenly some fear of your own has entered the picture or you're too tired and they've asked one more thing of you. It's all the same. Just Just one more thing to deal with. And to label all those things tests just puts you in a mindset of always being tortured or failing. You know, or like, it took me a long time to get that because I thought it was really good for me to think of everything as a test. You know, no, dear, no, no. Just let it go. Also, it's very self-centered. Oh, look what's happening to me. One more chance for me. No, it's just stuff. Just move. It's not everything. Everything that happens to you doesn't concern you personally. Just respond as needed and just go on. You respond, you pay attention, you're wide awake, but you don't have to draw it to a personal focus. Just I mean, you draw it to the focus in the sense of, hmm, this is a problem, something is required. Oh, look, my energy is really, really terrible now. I have to do something about it. So you're responding, but you're not analyzing and labeling and holding and all of those different things. This is all under the category of openness to higher truths. Because that's what's being said, that's what Swami defines this as. This is openness to higher truth. And bear in mind, he says, higher truth which says that there's many different levels on which you can look at what happens, and not all, they're not false. It's just you always want to pick it up from the highest that you're capable of sincerely reaching. You need to be sincere. You can't be just putting on a, a front. So if you're not, you know, if you can't go all the way to the top, you go up as far as you can. That's why I love the eight manifestations of God. Well, maybe I'm not joyful, but at least I can be calm. <laughs> You know, maybe I'm not very loving, but at least I'll be energetic. You know, maybe I'm not very peaceful, but at least I can laugh. You, you just, 
if you get used to sort of having those uh, in your little quiver, it's really interesting. You, you get so that you just kind of instinctively scan and just find the ones that, that you have access to at that moment, whatever it might be. And, and as long as you're trying, it'll all, it'll all resolve itself eventually. When you fall completely off the wagon, then you just sort of figure out, you know, how to get back on. Okay, comments, thoughts, or questions? All right. So, that is openness to higher truths. Let me see. He also uses, but we've we've touched this, an open to receive God's blessing even in the form of apparent misfortune. And I think we started there because of Saranya's question. Apparent misfortune is still what God wants for us because it's only apparent misfortune. I love, I love the way Swami uses language. Apparent misfortune. Isn't that an exact way to say it? Because he acknowledges that it does look, mis, you know, like it wasn't such a good thing, but it's only, it only appears to be that way. I, because Swami has used that word, I've heard him say, uh, he's used the phrase so many times, oh yes, so-and-so does have an unfortunate manner. That's how he speaks of someone who's just so obnoxious we can't stand to be around them. Yes, that person does have an unfortunate manner. I just, you can say the truth. You know, yeah, this, this is apparently quite unfortunate. This is apparent misfortune. But... God's blessings are presence even in apparent misfortune. That way you can be completely sincere. You don't have to put on a, a, a face. You can say this appears to be a tragedy. I'm experiencing this as tragic. I'm completely undone by this. But that doesn't mean that God's blessings are not present. It's just at the moment you may not be able to see them. So remain calm and wait to see what happens after that. Okay? So, number two. Uh, 233, moving on with the sutras. When disturbed by negative thoughts, think of their polar opposites. And he's just suggesting this as a very strong technique. And what he's also saying here by polar opposites is that don't... um, Swamiji tells that story about driving over the Bay Bridge when he was very, very busy in the middle of the time when he was teaching every night, and he felt a cold trying to come into him. And he, he immediately, it just started to come into him, and then he immediately repudiated it in a very loud voice, out loud, ordered the cold to get away from him. You know, get out, get out, he declared to the cold. But, and it did. He just felt the germs withdraw. They were a little intimidated by his unwillingness to entertain them. And he, then he talked later, which is the point that's so interesting and really important to remember. He said, Satan convinces you that you have to relate to him. And that's, he says, that's very, very subtle. And you, when you can really integrate that, you understand what that begins to mean. Oh, I feel bad. I need to. If, I need to feel bad. I have to think about why I feel bad. I need to experience these feelings I have to and and it just persuades you that it has a right to be with you master said when you're in a mood Satan has a hold of you that's how he put it I mean that's a very fierce statement so he's saying here when disturbed by negative thoughts think of their complete opposite 
And what he's also saying to you is don't even, don't entertain them. Don't reason with it. Don't try to think about why you might feel this way and why you're having this thought again. Just counter it. Counter it powerfully with something completely opposite. If you dislike something, someone, he doesn't really say try to like that person. He says concentrate on the people you do like. If you fall, your, feel yourself falling into a, a vibration of annoyance and judgment, he says just go somewhere where you don't have those feelings. Get out of that strata. Thoughts are universal. See, if you stay there with that person and try to think about what you do like about them, you're just as like you're still focused on the place where you're vulnerable. He's just telling you to remove yourself entirely from where you are vulnerable and go to some place where you're strong. Does that make sense? I, I had in my life, I mean, I have in my life, but this particular period, had a particular friend it was a little difficult for some people to get along with, but for some reason, karma, I don't know, whatever she did, I always thought it was fine. No matter how outrageous or unfortunate at times her manner was, she just could never upset me. I just really, really did and do. I just love the woman, just completely. And I used her as my model when other people would annoy me. I would think, well, if, if this other gal did it, it wouldn't bother me at all. It's not really the, the, the thing itself. It's just that I don't like this one, I don't like that one. I removed myself completely from the vibration by thinking about someone else where the energy was positive. And then you, then you can get perspective. Or you can simply not um, add fuel to the fire. You know, someone, someone annoys you in a moment, you've lost your center... But you can get your center back, and when you get your center back, the same action looks different to you. Uh, a married couple in our community um, who have a very deeply spiritual attitude, supposedly this is the man, this, the, the story the wife told, that when he, she was getting into it with her husband and just beginning to be, feel really annoyed with him and raising her voice and beginning to put out all this energy, and he was starting to respond, he smiled at her and he said, I'm not caught yet, are you? <laughs> And then, of course, it was very hard for her to stay in that cycle. I'm not caught yet. Are you caught? We see these things coming at us. You know, Swamiji, um, Swamiji used the phrase once to a young man. He just said, you know, you really need to take yourself in hand, is how he put the phrase. And you, you just really need to, to, to get a hold of yourself. And sometimes we just have to think like that. I just really need to get a hold of myself. At least continually make the effort and, and don't visualize ourselves as people who always have to go through all of these things. Just I've, I thought of myself that way for so many years in my life. I just thought of myself as delicate and sensitive and things would upset me and then I would have to process them and then I would have to go through all of this. And I was sitting next to Raghu, who most of you know, who's the, such a big, strong man, and we were doing an affirmations class and he chose the affirmation. It was something in a million years I never would have chosen. I'm sitting next to this big man with this big voice. I am brave. I am strong. I am fearless. I am, you know, the power of the world. And I'm sitting next to him going, I am brave. I am strong. <laughs> because even, but then that, in that moment, I thought to myself, my goodness, why am I always saying, I am sensitive. I am delicate. You know, why, why, why? I thought it was actually, I thought I was affirming something good. You know, I'm sensitive, I'm delicate. 
But just in that moment, I thought, this is not a virtue. And that phrase, take, just take yourself in hand. When you start going down that road, just say, no, I'm just not going to go there. I'm going to think in a completely opposite direction. That's Patanjali's way. Just don't give the vritti, don't feed the vritti. If the vritti's got a hold of you, don't feed it. Just go somewhere else as best you can. Now, this is not suppression. This is just honestly saying, I know you're there, but I'm not interested. Suppression is, I don't feel angry, I'm not angry, everything is fine, I don't dislike you, I actually really, 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 really like you. And, and you're not fooling yourself or anyone. You're saying, whoa, if I go over there, that is a sinkhole of bad attitude, so I think I'm going to go over here. It's just like, why go, why go in the pool? The pool is polluted. All right, any other questions? Well, let's take a break first. We'll take a break first, and then we can come back if there's more on that. Okay, are we ready now? Does anyone have any questions about anything that was just said, or shall we move right along? Okay, we're going to actually go to another sutra. So we're up to 234. When negative thoughts arise in the mind, or when one feels, feels impelled to commit acts of violence, whether out of craving, anger, or infatuation, so three interesting points. Acts of violence, you're compelled by craving, anger, or infatuation. And whether indulged in with mild, moderate, or extreme intensity, such thoughts and impulses are all based on ignorance and are certain to cause one pain. At such times, too, think they're opposite thoughts. There's a lot of really great stuff in there. First, he's telling us negative thoughts and impulses occur sometimes in the minds even of basically positive people. And Swami is fond of talking about our inner world as a huge population of citizens dwelling in the countries that we call our own personalities. So even if we're basically good, that doesn't mean that we're 100% good. We have all kinds of other things that might come out. Even saintly people may sometimes feel the sudden impulse to shout angrily at others. In all of the epics, you tell the story of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and so on. The curse of the Rishi is something that really happens. Whenever the plot needs a twist, a very highly evolved Rishi will have a moment of total anger and he will curse some poor unsuspecting so-and-so and then the whole story goes on after the curse of the Rishi. So it's just something that happens. And this is what he's saying here. Even very saintly people who have, have these moments and then they put tremendous energy behind them because they put tremendous energy behind anything. The curse of the Rishi was always fun in the stories because once the curse of the Rishi was offered, then you know all of destiny had to be guided by the curse of the Rishi. That's what happened to uh, Karna in the story of the Mahabharata. He was cursed by the Rishi a couple of times and therefore everything would go well to a certain point, but then the curse would come in. But, I mean, part of the reason that those characters in that reality is in those stories is for exactly the same reason that Patanjali refers to it here. Sometimes even the rishis become very, very angry. And so we recognize that all those years of tapasya and all that effort to make yourself perfect, still this bit of karma can just go off inside of you and these things can happen. So this stanza is useful for us for two reasons. Um, the first of it is to just be realistic about ourselves and 
not always be weighing and measuring and thinking that one moment is the complete definition of our spiritual life. It's not so much whether or not these impulses ever overtake us, it's what we do after they overtake us. And that's the whole point, that they will overtake us is right there in the scripture, is right there. When I, you know, this whole cycle that Ananda went, has gone through with this, uh, difficulties with SRF and um, when, if you were deeply involved in all of those controversies as I was, you knew that everything gets, ends up getting traced back to this, you know, this cadre of very devoted, advanced disciples of Master, Diamata, her sister Anandamata, Taramata. These are very advanced souls, very dedicated disciples, very dear to the guru. But it was always very difficult to really try to explain to people who were loyal to SRF what was really going on because it always had to be traced back to these great souls and they didn't want to accept that there could be error at that, at that level. And it was, it was dicey, still is dicey for conversational purposes. From the point of view of the devotee, sometimes other people would become quite um, discouraged on the spiritual path. How can someone who lived with Master for so long as a direct disciple still make such egregious errors? And that's a good question. But I always reasoned backwards. Wow, if someone who lived with Master for so long and was such a devoted disciple makes egregious errors, that must mean that even very, very advanced souls have bad days. And therefore, when I have a bad day, bad year, bad decade, <laughs> bad decision, bad direction, that's just what happens, even to very advanced souls. And you see, so therefore, when those things happen, all you have to deal with is that event. You don't have to deal with this whole crisis of faith, this whole disintegration of self-confidence, this belief that you'll never be a success on the spiritual path. All you have to deal with is the fact that, wow, hmm, craving, anger, or infatuation got a hold of me. And with either mild, moderate, or extreme intensity... I committed what he calls here an act of violence, meaning I acted strongly against dharma, against right action. And now I just have to pull myself back from it. And we don't waste any time worrying about it. We just, this is what's happened, and now we just go on. And in Swami's life, you know, uh, when certain facts came to light in the course of that, which is that the the life of celibacy that he had almost always lived was not flawless. And somehow people got so excited about that, just way out of proportion, especially what was so amazing was that the most licentious people among us were the ones who got most excited, like, how short is your memory, my friends? But Swami's response was, I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done. I mean, and his, just his answer was, I'm not going to, I don't feel that I have to apologize for my life. He says, I've, I've, I've done the very best I could in every circumstance, and I've conquered. I've, I've, if, I've, if I've slipped, I haven't fallen. That's how he made it. That statement became very well known. A slip is not a fall. That the, the way, if you ever seriously try to achieve anything that requires a great deal of self-control 
and brahmacharya is one of those things, you realize that merely because you're not perfect in the performance of it does not mean that you are not doing it. That's how you get there. It's just you veer a little off track and you just come back on track. And, and to worship the error and feel that, you know, somehow or another this completely disqualifies you from righteousness, it's just ludicrous. It's just every so often craving, anger, or infatuation gets a hold of you when one reason or another um, you're vulnerable. And the fact that Patanjali puts it right in here after telling us all about the qualities that we should have. And the next thing he said is, when you're not able to live up to this, here's a very good technique. Put your mind immediately to the opposite. And that's also saying, forget it. You're not denying it. You're not saying it never happened. It's just that, well, now it's behind me. So now let me put my mind to the opposite and just go forward. As Swamiji said, if you just throw dust on your own head every time you make a mistake, your concentration is on dust and on your own head, neither of which will take you where you want to go. So what he's suggesting here is when, once these things happen and you see that it's happened, just strongly focus in the opposite direction. When my friend, who was in such a bad mood for so many weeks, and I was commissioned to find out why she was so unhappy, and her explanation of why she was so crabby was that her meditations were going so badly. That was her explanation. I can't meditate. She went on this long self-despairing um, cycle of her hopelessness as a devotee. And I, I realized that I was following Patanjali without even knowing it. Well, I said, if my meditations are going back badly, I try to be really, really nice. <laughs> because, you know, if I'm failing in one area, I want to succeed really big in another. So far from having that being a justification for being crabby, I feel that's a goad to being as, as good as you can be where you can be. Affirm the opposite in whatever way you can. If you don't like someone, then think about someone you like. Just get your mind out of the mess. Because it's all a question of what we channel. There's no inherent truth in these things. It's just what we choose to tune into. And by doing that, also what you're, what you're saying to Satan, coming in and saying, think ill of this person, be angry at that one, want their behavior to be different, you say, no, I'm not listening to you. I'm just not interested. Get out. You don't have to relate to it. Just refuse to relate to it. I'm not interested in that. I'm going to go over here. Of course, the one that we love the most is God and Guru. So the perfect answer to any of those crabby things is to think about God and Guru. Think just the opposite. Remember the beautiful experiences that we've had together. Remember the moments when God has touched your life. Remember what it feels like to receive love and compassion. And that's so much more attractive than delivering to others or to the world in any way. Um, he says also, he says, however, never excuse or justify the sudden, as he calls it, jerk of the mind as due to any influence but one's own ignorance. And that's where, the, that's where you're not suppressing. You're not, you're not running away from the sheer observation that, wow, these things can happen. It's very hard to explain because I've fought my way through a lot of this. I don't really enjoy doing wrong things. I don't really having the jerk of the mind that pulls you suddenly somewhere that you really don't want to be. You hear yourself saying something that you think, wow, that was really the wrong thing to have said. 
or whatever it might be, or you just feel yourself sinking into a state of mind you don't want. But just don't ever try to say, well, he really provoked me. Well, you know, we have this karma between us, and so therefore that's the way I always am. And if only he had been more sensitive in the way he presented it to me. (laughs) That's my favorite. If you just treated me differently than you do, then, of course, I would be nicer to you. Oh, really? So in other words, it's not really my fault. It's always yours. It's always the world around me. And, and that's even sweeter when the people around you are misbehaving. That's my favorite one. When you're absolutely right that everybody around you has provoked you unbelievably. And they're all wrong. But that still doesn't make you right. It just doesn't. And these are the... I mean, this is Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. This is like the quintessential path of yoga. And the more deeply you, you get these points... So, so deep somewhere in you that even when you step outside of them, they're so deep in you, they will, they will come back and rescue you all on their own. I've, I've told you many times about the time when I was so upset about all these other people's suffering that I couldn't alleviate, and I was just weeping in despair. And then I heard that thought, could this be happening outside the will of God? And I was so annoyed. I really was annoyed because I was having a hissy fit, and I wanted to keep having it. I really did not want to be comforted at that point, and I definitely did not want it to be lifted out of my mood. But there it was. It's like all of the practicing when it was easier just came right back to me. I just heard it. I heard it myself. Why are you behaving this way? Then why are you crying? I still had a tremendous energy to try to shift the uh, situation, and I shifted it into prayer demand, which was a legitimate use of my feeling at that point. But despair was not. Why would I be in despair? So God is teaching people through suffering. That's just what came. Why, why, what's, what's your justification for collapsing into tears? Well, I guess I don't have one, do I? So we just practice as often as we can, and then it becomes second nature. It's like when you chant a lot or sing Swami's songs, you'll find yourself. You just, you just suddenly, in some odd circumstance, the chant will come back to you when you need it. Or you wake up in the night, and it's happening to you. And it's so funny. This is completely off the subject, but this was so funny. I had this dream uh, after the Guru Day retreat, and I just feel like it was the, my Divine Mother just playing with me. I dreamt about Swami Shivananda. You know, except it wasn't Shivananda as an adult. It was this fat little baby, this very strong, very fat little baby with a very bald head, as babies have. But it was Swami Shivananda in my dream. And he was this sturdy little, like about a two-year-old, standing on this crib. And somehow I was lying down, and I was trying to keep the child in the crib. And he was impishly, very much impishly playing with me. Because he was so strong, he was pushing really hard against my arm, and I was trying to keep him in the crib. And then he looked over at me, and with this really impish smile, and it was sort of like, I'm a baby and I can do this, he began to drool all over my arm. like, I have a weapon that I can use on you. <laughs> and I'm just watching him drool over my arm. Then this little baby looks at me, and I looked at him, and we just started to laugh. You know, just that, 
incredible way that Swami would laugh, that just freedom that would just burst out. And I just woke up from a dead sleep with this loud laughter coming out of my mouth. Isn't that just funny? God just playing with us. I really felt it was just the, the chaotic subconscious taking all of that inspiration of Saturday night and just sort of offering it back to me. But the look on that baby's face when he began to drool on my arm was so... <laughs> I think of it... I think God sort of plays with us that way. Oh, look, I, I'm going to do this to you just because I can. You know, I'm going to do something to you and you're going to have to deal with it, aren't you? Yeah, it's delightful. So, and then when we fail, we have to take responsibility. Let me think where we were in any of this. <laughs> Let's see. So, I also think... And this is the last thing I want to just comment here. I believe these three interesting craving, anger, and infatuation are fascinating to contemplate. I'd never really thought about those ideas. We want something, we desire it, and just think how agitated we get because of that. We become infatuated. I I was thinking back of this experience I had. This was when I was in India, one of the trips. I was... um, I may have been staying in Swami's house in, uh, in Gorgaon, where he lives. I probably was staying in the house, and if not, I was staying right, right nearby. And there was a lot going on that day. But, oh, no, I need to make this not too complicated. And I was so engaged in everything that was happening. I was there for several weeks that I never had much opportunity to do anything that I wanted to do. And I, I like, there, certain, there were certain stores. This was before we were in Naya Swami's. I really liked to shop in these certain stores. And I, it's, you know, part of being in India was so much fun was to be able to go shopping. And this day I had managed to work everything out so that I was going to be able to sneak away and go shopping. And I woke up in the morning with this thought, I, you know, I want to do these certain things. I have these desires and I've worked it out that I'm going to do these things. In the course of that day, I made a, just a terrible mistake. And the mistake that I made uh, was being impelled by my own subconscious feelings. Certain, certain situations make me very edgy. Certain uh, injustices that I'm very vulnerable to. Certain injustices were being carried out, and I stepped into a situation I had no business being involved in. I created a mess for Swamiji that I had to go and unravel that actually had repercussions for months. It was just a terrible situation. And by the time dinner time comes and I'm sitting at the dinner table, you know, the whole mess is in front of me and I'm going to have to go tomorrow and try to straighten out ten different people in this awful situation. But I just sat there and I said to Swami, Swami, I woke up this morning and I, the only thought I had was what I desire and how I'm going to get it. And I said, as soon as I started, I started my day like that and all day long the undercurrent of my day in, because usually when I'm there, I just don't, I don't want anything. I just pay attention to Swami and I follow whatever he's doing. But that day I started with, this is what I want. And I said, in that, just that ego orientation, I said, it just blinded me all day long. And I remember I said to him, one has to be really, really careful. You have to always be vigilant, don't you? He said, uh-huh. That's all. Just, uh-huh. It was a very, very dramatic illustration. Craving. There you go. I mean, I'm, and Swami partly was very relaxed because he, he said to me, you know, you're usually extremely attentive to my well-being and that I would just 
completely lose track of his well-being. That was what, you know, that's we, that was what we were discussing. I said, I, Swami, I was thinking of nothing. And then the, you know, this other subconscious impulse of mine had power because I was so much in the bob of what do I want that I just forgot. I forgot about his well-being. Wow, impressive, isn't it? Craving, anger, infatuation. I think they deserve more energy than we can give them, so we'll just start back there when we come back next week. All right. Thank you. Bless you.